Well, good morning once more. You might say that what this sermon is, among other things, is one extended argument for what we just did. Um, Because inasmuch as they come before you to acknowledge subscription to certain doctrines about what we believe the scripture is teaching, um, whether it's explicit or implicit, you, you, you decide, they are also acknowledging that they will need us to, uh, to remind ourselves of what is true because we forget. There's another reason, though, why one might come from membership in a body, and that is because you and I all possess a fatal flaw, <laughs> and you thought it was just one. The fatal flaw, I thought, was best um, summarized by um, a quote from a book that came out several years ago by a woman named Carol Tavaris. The name of that book was called Mistakes Were Made. And it's a very purposeful uh, turn of construction of phrase there. But um, in that book, um, she writes, this is our problem. Most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, uh, do not change their point of view or course of action, but justify it even more tenaciously. Even irrefutable evidence is rarely enough to pierce the mental armor of self-justification. In other words, her argument is that you and I are hardwired to hear 10,000 reasons why we might be wrong, and our first inclination is not to go, you may have something there. Our first inclination is to go, you are hush. And the reason I know this is true is because at least 50% of you in this room are thinking to yourself right now, yeah, boy, I know somebody needs to hear that. (laughs) Boy, I got a list. Me? Yes. This guy? Oh, my gosh. We are hardwired that way. It's a problem. And I'm betting you have stories from your own experience in which you found yourself digging your heels in. We're in a a series in the Proverbs because we believe, and I think you do too, that this life needs more than facts. This life needs wisdom. I don't just need to know what I can find on Google. I need to know what to do with what I find on Google. G.I. Joe was wrong. Knowing is not half the battle. Knowing what to do with what you know is the whole battle, practically. We want wisdom. Not only what is true, but how to apply that truth, when, why, and for what reasons. We're about to read a passage that is stark, unambiguous, sobering, and will be hard to hear. Because it's pointed. And it in some ways, some characterize it as a sermon. If wisdom were personified, this is the sermon that wisdom would give us all. We're going to listen to that sermon, and we're going to learn a few things about the nature of wisdom. But then we're going to ask ourselves this. How does what we hear in that sermon about wisdom square with what we believe about the one whose whole life was one big sermon on wisdom? What do we learn about the nature of wisdom, and how does that square with the one who was the embodiment of wisdom. Buckle up. It will be bumpy. We're in chapter one. We'll start in verse 20. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you might hear in hand. Proverbs one, starting in verse 20. 
Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn in my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure. And will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is the sobering word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I told you it would be hard. What do we do with it? Do we just move on to the more cheerful parts? You can't. It's there. We got to wrestle with it. What do we wrestle? How do we wrestle? We wrestle, first of all, with just a few things that you may notice here in the early part of the passage. First of all, that wisdom's personified. It's called a lady. She. She cries out. Um, with apologies to, you know, Frank Sinatra, wisdom, be a lady tonight. What, what's that about? Why? Why? Thank you very much, Brad. Um, why personified? Cause wisdom, folks, is not like chiseled words on a, on a stone wall. It's, it comes to you as probingly as someone looking you in the eye and asking you to take their gaze. Wisdom is not this sterile abstraction that is codified in law. It comes to you tailor-made. It comes to you like a lady looking you in the eye saying, listen to me. Wisdom works like that. But, but notice also where wisdom applies. You hear her speaking in a variety of ways, but in a variety of places, in the streets, in the marketplace, at the entrance of the city gates. That's, that's references just to being out among the people and, and actually in the, in the corridors of commerce. And of course, there in the, the entrance to the city of gates, we're talking about where power is. Wisdom has application everywhere. There is no place where wisdom is not needed. You need it in business. You need it in commerce. Students, you're in school. Do you know where else you need wisdom? You need wisdom in friendships. People bully you. People talk down to you. People entice you with ideas. And you think, I'll just do what they think. I, like, I want to be included. To be a friend requires wisdom. To know how to choose friends requires wisdom. There is no place that you and I are not needful of wisdom. It applies everywhere. And she goes into every nook and cranny to say, I have something to say to you. The most poignant 
part to note just in those early verses of the passage is that the point of this sermon that's given by Lady Wisdom, the the point of it has as much to do with the tone in which it's given. Um, This is not a a stale, sterile lecture on wisdom, as if wisdom is saying, turn in your textbooks to page 394. Snape is not in the house. This wisdom comes to us more like what you're about to see in a clip from that film that came out a couple years ago called Fences. Denzel Washington plays a garbage truck driver who missed his chances about ever being in the baseball league. He's a black man. His name is Roy. His wife is played by Viola Davis. She, her name is Rose. And in this scene, Roy has come home to kind of confess that he's had an affair and that by that affair, a child will be born. But at the same time that he's telling her that, he's also trying to justify what he did by trying to help her to see that the reason he did this is because he's just trying to you know, forget all of his problems and, and maybe find a new life. And in this moment, in the midst of his attempt to justify himself, listen to how his wife responds. I was standing on first base waiting for one of them boys to knock me in to bring me home. I saw the gal, she firmed up my backbone. I got to thinking that if I tried, maybe I could steal second. You understand you what I'm saying? Me. I just wanted you to steal grab second. Me and I stood on first base for 18 years and I thought well for We ain't talking about baseball. We're talking about you going off and laying up with another woman and bringing it home to me. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about no baseball. You're not listening to me. I'm trying to explain it to you the best way I know how. It's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years. Well, I've been standing with you. I've been right here with you, Troy. I got a life, too. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? Don't you think I ever crossed my mind and want to know other men that I wanted to... Lay up somewhere and forget about my responsibilities. Then I wanted someone to make me laugh so I could feel good. You're not the only one who's got wants and needs. But I held on to your toy. I took all my feelings, my wants and needs and dreams, and I buried them inside you. I planted a seed and watched and prayed over. I planted myself inside you and waited to bloom. It didn't take me no 18 years to realize the soil was hard and rocky and it was never going to bloom. But I held on to your toy. I held you tighter. You was my husband. I owed you everything I had, every part of me I could find to give you. And upstairs in that bedroom with the darkness falling in on me, I gave everything I had to try and erase the doubt that you wasn't the finest man in the world. And wherever you was going, I was going to be there with you because you was my husband. Because that's the only way I was going to survive as your wife. You're always talking about what you give and what you don't have to give. But you take too, Troy. You take and don't even know nobody's given. Lady Wisdom. Most of the time, wisdom does not come to you wrapped in a Hallmark card. Most of the time, wisdom comes to you with your backside being handed to you. Like then, ferociously, pointedly. Wisdom is like that. And you heard it in the passage. She cries out 
She screams. She lifts her voice, raises her voice that she might be heard. This is not someone who is speaking in a muted way. And this is also not someone saying, take it or leave it. This is someone saying, get this. Grasp this. Hold on to this. Heed this. Lady wisdom often comes to us with a ferocity that we have to reckon with. But here's the beauty of it. A beauty that is so perfectly captured in that scene right there. The, the temperature of the sermon as the temperature of the clip from Lady Wisdom, it is, it is all the way to 11. And why is that? Because both that clip and this passage are spoken to someone who has refused to listen for a very long time. Why? Because of that quote at the beginning of the sermon. We're hardwired to justify ourselves no matter how much information to the contrary. Which is why you'll find another proverb that says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You can be so convinced, so persuaded, and so doomed by how much you are persuaded. And the beauty of that scene and this passage is that despite someone refusing to listen for so long, it is wisdom saying to us and not to you, if you will just start listening, I will not begrudge you of your prior stubbornness. You heard her say in verse 22 and 23, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. I will not chagrin you for being stubborn. I will give to you all that I have. If only you will start listening. Um, the joke is, when you're 18, you think your parents are the dumbest people on the planet. They don't know anything. They don't get me at all. And then you go away. Like whether you go to college or you go off and you, and then come back two years later and you, and you think, my gosh, my parents have really become smart in the last two years. It wasn't them that changed. It was that you began to understand that you don't quite know as much as you thought you did and that your parents actually had a lot more experience to share with you than you had any idea or was willing to hear. And in a moment like that, guess what? You look at mom and you say, you know, I never really listened to you, but I wonder if you would tell me, you know what mom is not going to do? She's going to say, I'm sorry, honey, that ship has sailed. I have other things to do and better people to do them with. (laughs) Mom's going to say, sit down, honey, let's finally talk. Because she will not begrudge you for your prior faithfulness. Because just like Viola Davis's character says, I might be as upset with you and angry with you at the reasons why you have not listened, but I will be committed. I will be concerned for your good. St. Augustine, in his confessions, his confession to God says, Late have I loved you. Beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped and now I pant for you. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace. That's the nature of wisdom. To scream until you hear, until you start heeding. 
And all oh, that sounds so awesome and wonderful and like, thank goodness for that. But look, I wish the passage ended at verse 23, but it doesn't. There's more to the sermon. And it's the hardest part to hear about the sermon. Because the sermon is envisioning, it's envisioning, it's imagining someone who's not only been stubborn for a while, but who continues to be stubborn. To live out the very phenomenon that you heard in that quote from mistakes were made. It envisions someone who is so hardwired to refuse words from the outside. And so you hear Lady Wisdom say, starting in verse 24, because I've called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm. I have a scar above my right eye. And it happened as a consequence of going on a mission trip to Russia in seminary about 20 years ago. And in my 20s, I really didn't have a concept of becoming dehydrated. But while I was in Russia, I drank a lot of tea, which dehydrates you. And towards the last day of the trip, I was starting to feel really bad, getting headaches, not, not feeling well. Get home to Dallas, move back into my dorm on campus, and late that night about midnight, throbbing headache, but I got to use the bathroom. So I walked down to the community bathroom, and at risk of you never, ever respecting me again, I'll tell you what happened. There, as I'm using the facilities... The next thing I know, I'm laying on the floor of the bathroom, my head staring at the ceiling and blood running down my head. It's because I had a vasovagal response and hit my head on the fixture on the way down. Okay, it was the urinal. Why am I telling that story? Because right around that time, I'm dating the girl who would become my wife. And that night, I crawled back to my room and slept it off. You're not supposed to do when you pass out after a head injury. You might have a concussion. You might not wake up again, but I did that. And I go to the ER in Dallas that day and they rehydrate me, but they say we can't do anything for your eye, man, because it's, you know, you waited too long. So I call Christy, who's out doing something, and I left a message on her answering machine. Remember those large things? And I recount to her what's happened. Yeah, I kind of hit my head on the urinal and now I've got this scar and. Anyway, she leaves me a message on my answering machine the next day. And her message was, she did what? <laughs> you, it's head on the, you're kidding me. She's laughing. She's mocking my calamity. Those series of unfortunate choices that I made, it all come to this. And what is she doing? She's, um, she's laughing at me. Okay. Look, that's funny. I, I hope it doesn't blunt, though, the point the very sobering point of this passage. If you repeatedly refuse to hear the wisdom that is coming with you, there are two things that you should expect. One is obvious. Trouble. Loss. Calamity. Sorrow. You don't listen. Over time, it will cost you. If any of you were alive and kicking in 1986, like I was, then you remember where you were probably when the Challenger exploded. I was in the eighth grade. And for the next two years, I was transfixed on what happened. And if you know that story, you know that NASA engineers were telling the people that developed those 
gaskets on the solid rocket boosters that eventually failed, but they had never launched a shuttle below 53 degrees. And on January 28th, 1986, it was in the mid-30s. There was stuff freezing up. And there were engineers that were saying, we don't know if those gaskets can handle that kind of temperature. We're not sure if they'll maintain their resilience to keep the seams full of integrity so that hot gases don't blow it up. But other engineers on the team said, okay, do you have any hard data to back up your your idea there? And they said, unfortunately, we don't have any hard data on that. We're making really intuitive what we think wise guesses. And they said, what, are we supposed to wait till April to launch? They shut everybody up, and you know what happened. The gaskets could not withstand that temperature. They weren't resilient. Hot gas poured into the chamber, and seven people died. Calamity, loss, sorrow, all proceeding from a refusal to hear repeated informed warnings about what could happen. But the worst part of it, though, was those who for the next 20 years of their lives lived in shame because they knew what could happen. Not only was their loss, but what compounded the loss was the sting of knowing that they had plenty of information to make an alternative choice. And that sting felt like they were being mocked by the wisdom that they already had. We all experience loss if we dig our heels in, but what compounds that loss is the sting of knowing what we knew. And that's why I am sure that there is at least a hundred of us in this room who at one time or another, after you've done something wrong, has finally said to yourself, if not out loud, how could I have been so stupid? The loss was one thing. Knowing what you knew after the fact made it all the worse. And it felt like what you knew was now mocking you in a way that hurt. A lot of things in this life, a lot of things that we love will blow up without warning And we never saw it coming and we couldn't have done anything about it if we tried. But there are a lot of other things in this life that blow up that we probably saw coming at least a little bit. Marriages rarely die overnight. They more often die over time. And in the course of that time, it is an opportunity for reflection, for appealing to insight that you do not have, insight that you might have for a very long time, turned aside for a very long time. And at some point, perhaps you thought you finally clicked in and you began to scramble to do everything you could, but it was like, oh my gosh, that train has already left the station. And the sting of what you know is all the more stinging. You can call this sermon that you find in this passage hard. You can find it sobering. You can call it pointed, but this is the question. You you might even call it curiously hopeless for a text of Scripture. But here's the question. Does it lie? Is it wrong? Can we not all point to moments in our life where our repeated refusals to heed wisdom manifested not only in loss, but in great sorrow? And that's why Bruce Waltke A commentator on this verse said this, truth has a harsh edge and wisdom does not dull it. That's why the point of the passage is what you hear at the very end. If you are continually dismissive of the wisdom that is coming your way, you should expect some sort of devastation. But if you will only humble yourself before it, it will be a haven for you. That's the nature of wisdom. It's the way it works.
It's what we found. It's what you know, whether you are willing to admit it or not. But herein lies the last question we have to ask then. If that's really the nature of wisdom, how does that square with what we know about Jesus? Like, where's the grace in all of that? I mean, and, and Jesus is not just sort of struck as somebody who had a lot of, you know, remarkable insight. I mean, Paul says Jesus is our wisdom. He's the embodiment of wisdom. He walked the earth and his whole life, as I said at the beginning, was a one long sermon on what it meant to be wise. How does that view of Jesus square with what we find in this passage? Because if they don't go together, we have a big problem. How do they fit? Do they square? Let's find out. Let's, let's rewind and replay the tape. Let's, let's track it back and ask ourselves some of the same questions we got from the sermon with what we know of Jesus. Question one, do we ever find Jesus pleading fiercely like Lady Wisdom does in this passage? Of course. Remember that moment in the temple where he's pretty upset about the way everybody's conducting themselves in the temple and he turns the tables over. And when we get to the, the, the sermon on Proverbs about anger, I will refer back to this moment again because his anger is surgically precise. But let's call it what it was. It was an angry proclamation such that he says there in John 2, take these things away. Do not, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's angry. He's pleading. He's crying out. And it's fierce. And even at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we heard towards our, the beginning of our service today, it's not ambiguous what he's saying. And it's not anything but pointed when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine does will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. Great was the fall of it. Does he ever plead? Sure does. Check. Question two. Does Jesus ever gladly bestow insight on someone who's been stubborn for a while? <laughs> yeah. Uh, case in point. Uh, the wee little man Zacchaeus, right? Makes his whole living off of defrauding his fellow countrymen and being in the back pocket of the Roman Empire. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, and it better be good because you can afford it. They go, they talk, and by the end of that meal, Zacchaeus has already said, you know what? I'm going to restore fourfold everything that I've defrauded. He goes beyond even what the law prescribed when you are caught defrauding a brother, a neighbor, whatever it might be. He goes over and above, and what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. Sounds like he's gladly bestowing insight to someone with prior stubbornness. I mean, the disciples are the poster child for stubbornness. I mean, what's Peter's first words out of his mouth when he sees Jesus? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, nah, follow me. That's my paraphrase. It's the way it works. Does he ever gladly bestow insight to somebody who's been priorly stubborn? Absolutely. Okay, but here's the hardest question. Does Jesus ever mock? Does he ever mock and fall silent before the foolish? You might say, ha, we found a discrepancy here. There's a disparity between who Jesus is and this, you know, so-called sermon on wisdom. 
Um, consider this. At his trial, he has every opportunity to sort of wax eloquently about who he is, what he's doing, and how they're wrong. He's, he's standing before a whole slew of fools in sequence. And what does he do? He falls silent. He doesn't defend himself. He just stands and lets the process unfold. He was silent before the fools. But does he ever mock? Does he ever mock people in their calamity? Okay. Ready? That, that cross is many things. Rich with aspects that we could mine and will mine for the entirety of our lives. But you know what? That cross is among other things. It's a statement of mockery. Oh, yes, Jesus is being mocked upon his cross. We all know that. But guess what? That cross is a mockery of our situation. It is mocking us. It is mocking us for our foolishness. We were so foolish to think that we could become like gods. And the cross says, you fool. We were foolish enough to think that we could justify ourselves by whatever things we do, the degrees that we earn, the, the things that we accomplish, the, the children that we raise, the, the, the institutions that we found. We think that we could justify ourselves, and we're just like that horse at the derby yesterday. I'm going to hoof it and hoof it and hoof it. I'm going to win. Guess what his name is? Justify. That's you. That's me. We think we can do all of this to justify our existence before God. And the cross looks at us and says, you're a fool. We think we were foolish enough that we could compensate for all of the stupid things that we've done, all of the sins that we've committed in the crosses. You're a fool to think that. And last of all, the cross is mocking us in a way we were foolish enough to think that we could endear ourselves to God just by how impressive we are or how sweet we could become. The cross is doing a lot of things and not just mocking, but it's not less than mocking either. The cross comes to us and says, we are all fools. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we might become wise. His cross does not refrain from mocking, but know this true. At the same time that he's mocking us in so many words and in his silence, he is also saying, but I will not wash my hands of you. I will go to the cross anyway. I will do this for you anyway. I will make you mine anyway. Such that even on that cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These fools have no idea. And I'm asking you to forgive them anyway. What does that say to us? Because of that, despite all our errors, despite all our folly, despite all our sin, we are still his if we believe that his blood was real and effective for our own good, we may be guilty of committing colossal forms of folly, but we will never be lost from his grip. That's the gospel. That's his wisdom. That's what he's asking us to get at the same time that he's trying to mock us for our foolishness. And when you and I get that, the extent to which we believe that even despite our folly, he will say to us, you belong to me. When you get that, you and I are both freed and invited to two things, which is where I'm going to land this sermon. What do you do with what we learn about wisdom and the author of wisdom, the embodiment of wisdom? When you get the gospel, you are freed to two things. One, 
is to ask yourself certain questions in search of wisdom. What word of wisdom have you been hearing of late or for a while that you're maybe just refusing to hear? What is your body telling you these days? What are the people closest to you saying? Maybe indirectly or directly. What are even your detractors saying that, that even though they may be so wrong about so much, about so much of you, that maybe there's still just a kernel of truth in what they have to say that you ought to maybe listen to? What, what word of wisdom is coming to you that you're just sort of saying, ah? Questions and seeking of wisdom. When you get the gospel, you can ask those deep and difficult questions because you're his. What, what word of gospel wisdom do you need to hear? Gospel wisdom that says, you know what, that sin that you're hiding, why aren't you confessing that? Or that, that sense of your own identity that you think is sort of bound up with everything that you might accomplish, where, where, where are you forgetting that, that you belong to him, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done? And when it comes to your destiny, you, you may be losing everything right now. You, everything, like not even 12 cylinders. You might be losing, not, not hitting on even one cylinder right now. The end of the passage says, if those who come to me in wisdom will find a haven from even the dread of disaster. Listen carefully. Neither wisdom nor the author of wisdom promises you and me that we will not find harm. It does not promise that we will have a haven from difficulty or tribulation. What it does promise is a haven from the dread that comes with it. Harm may be in your future, and it probably will be, but the dread of it will be tempered when you come to believe that the word of the gospel has something to say to us about our destiny, that even if you lose everything, you still haven't lost him because he hasn't lost you. What word of gospel wisdom is being closed out by static? This invites you to ask those questions of yourself in search of wisdom, but it also and lastly, invites you to seek out relationship offering wisdom. Near the end of that book, written by Carol Tavris, she makes this suggestion to everybody who is hardwired to justify themselves interminably. She says this, We need a few trusted naysayers in our lives. Critics who are willing to puncture our protective bubble of self-justification and yank us back to reality if we veer too far off. This is especially important for people in positions of power. That word of wisdom may never have been more true. Do you have any naysayers in your life? Anybody whom you've given permission to speak a hard word, but to be bold in that? And, and not just bold in being a naysayer, but being bold with encouragement. The folks that stood up here about 30 minutes ago, implicitly they were saying, I need naysayers in my life. And I need encouragers in my life. And you know what? You need the gospel. You need the gospel both to hear what naysayers say, rather than digging your heels in. You, you like, you're secure in who you are before the Lord that you can actually hear really pointed criticism and not go off on that. You need the gospel to hear naysayers. You also need the gospel to be a naysayer. I do. Because my first inclination is just to tell you what you want to hear 
and not to be a naysayer. But I need the gospel to be able to speak that so that if that's what you need to hear, speaking the truth in love, so that your own self-justification can be punctured there on the spot. The text is rather straightforward, even in its sobriety. Ignore wisdom to your peril. But run to the one who put himself in the way of peril so that you and I might lean into what wisdom is at the same time that we're trusting in his love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.